Dr. Herching, welcome to Race Cogatons. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. All right, so Dr. Herching is a neuroscientist and a research or a professor in the, UN, the University of Southern California's Department of Preventive Medicine. She researches the environmental effects on brain development and mental health outcomes. She also looks at hormone differences, sex differences, all that good stuff that we'll get into. And let's get started. How did you first get interested in neuroscience? Does this start yeah. in like early childhood you, you <laughs> or late in college? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I, I liked math and science fine in, uh, as an elementary school child, but I really didn't know about science and what science really meant and research really meant until I got to college. And I stumbled upon neuroscience in particular uh, dur during um, some psychology requirement courses. So the funny thing about I'm a first generation faculty member, I guess that's the term. I kept saying mm -hmm. college student, but now there, I guess there's a term, first generation faculty member. And so, uh, you know, I applied to school not really knowing what I was doing. Somehow I ended up in the economics or business school when I knew I wanted to do psychology, don't know what happened there. Uh, but once I got to the University of Illinois, you know, switched my major to psychology, and then the requirements included, you know, some biological psychology, as they called it, which is really neuroscience. And so I had to take a couple of, you know, biological psychology courses to fill those credits. And I remember distinctly sitting in a lecture hall, and it was one of those intro bio, biological psychology courses. So a couple of hundred of students, because U of I is very big, it's 40,000 undergrads. Um, and we had a number of faculty who taught, you know, they taught in like month, month and a half long segments. And they were just talking about really interesting things. You know, I was always thinking about psychology, how do we feel or why do some individuals struggle with anxiety and depression, all of a sudden, there was like actual physical reasons why these things were happening. And this just seemed really amazing to me. They weren't theories, they were literally how are neurons changing related to x condition or y condition. And, and it just really, you know, sparked my interest that all of a sudden there was some tangible reason why things existed the way that everyone experienced them in daily life. And, and, and from that day forward, I really started to do more in terms of trying to find professors to do research with, trying to understand the biology. And that's how I ended up on the track for neuroscience. That's very cool. So did you actually switch your major to neuroscience at that point? Or were you still a psych major and you just became much more neuro focused? Yeah, so we didn't have an undergrad degree in neuroscience then. I'm sure that they do now. Um, so I just, I just really focused. I just started taking all of the biological psychiatry and all the upper le level biological psychiatry classes, and then started uh, doing research in labs that were neuroscience labs. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned when you were younger, you didn't even really know what research was. So is this something that happened just through your courses? You know, you obviously you learn about all the studies that go into uh, everything you're learning is, or did you have, did you build a personal relationship with a professor and that's how you became involved in research? So it's kind of embarrassing. The reason I even got into research, one is they kept saying, you know, in case you want to continue to do school, you need research experience, whatever that meant. Uh, but two, I was told by an upper level student that if I got research experience, I could start getting paid to wash like the beakers in, in labs. And I really, I had a lot of jobs during college, but it sounded really cool to be in a lab on my CV and also to get paid to wash beakers. And so um, I started to just play around with doing research by signing up for those labs that people said, oh yeah, like in my final year, I got paid to wash their beakers and do studies with them. Um, but I was lucky enough that, you know, I found someone on the website, you know, kind of picked someone at random based on their description. And his name was Bill Greenow, and he's very famous. He's passed away since, but very famous scientist in studying environmental enrichment. So if you put mice or rats in a cage with toys versus just keep them standardized, what was, you know, essentially husbandry of, of mice back in the seventies, you saw prolific differences in their brain structure and, and, and it was just really amazing. And that sounded really exciting to me, this idea that we weren't really 
know, you always hear about genetics, but this idea that we could really be that malleable in our brains seemed to really like stick, stick, you know, stick with me. It's really cool. And, and going back to what you said about washing beakers, it, it's, it's really funny that it seems like all of the paid lab positions are the most grunt worky ones and the really fun ones where you get to do your own research are usually volunteer. So was it just that one lab that you were in all through undergrad working with mice? Uh, primarily, I think I did a, a very quick like psychology research where I was running a couple of people essentially, you know, for Psych 101, help the Psych 101 students come in and start an experiment on a computer laptop, right? Um, and I did that maybe for half of a semester, um, did what I was asked to do, but didn't really find it interesting, didn't get to talk to the professor at all. I'm not even sure who trained me, but um, when I got into this other lab, I got paired with a postdoctoral fellow and that was really exciting. She was the one that was having us read journal articles, which scared me to death, right? I was like, what am I doing? I don't know any of this, but mm -hmm. it was really fun to think about, you know, what we were studying and, and, and I was feeling engaged where I hadn't in the other lab. Yeah, taking, <laughs> I hope this isn't an invasion of privacy, but I remember you slacked a couple of weeks ago. Like, I just wish I could have several weeks to catch up on all these articles I have to read, but <laughs> which is uh, such a transformation from going to being scared of these articles to wishing you had more free time for reading them. I know, and it, you, it's funny, right? Because when I first started uh, that, you know, research in academia, it would take me forever to get through an article. Even the simplest ones, I think I had to read three times to be like, what does this mean? And it really is a learned skill. And I can totally understand why students in my, in my class that I teach where we go over primary literature together are really overwhelmed because it's, there's so much jargon. Um, so I, I totally get it. But yes, there's just so much literature coming out these days. It's like every day I, I find 50 more articles I wish <laughs> I had time to read and I just can't. There's just not enough time in the day. My favorite part has been watching the, the jargon slowly unscramble itself as I either become more familiar with uh, a given area or as I just I'll learn something new in a class that day and then maybe a few days later I'll see it in some article and be like I understand this now. Yeah isn't it also really kind of insane that you know uh, we still are using so much jargon in what we do <laughs> I mean I, we're all connected in ways that we weren't back then right you used to also when I was an undergrad you had to go to the library one of the things I was asked to do is go to the library look up the journals look up the papers and scan every article right like Xerox copy articles out of big binders of books and um, nowadays everything's at our fingertips and we've learned to communicate in ways you know I don't think we could imagine even 20 years ago and yet we still have their very jargon to get at pretty simple comp you know simple ideas if we could just break it down for people. Right. And it's really funny to think that journals used to literally mean journals, or, or maybe it still does. I guess, I guess some of them still send out magazines. But for me, my entire experience with it has been online, which is nice. It saves, saves me from trips to the Xerox machine. Yeah, absolutely. And stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of papers. Mm -hmm. So when you, how did you decide you wanted to go to graduate school? Was it just you wanted to keep learning or you really enjoyed the research and you wanted to keep it going? Yeah, I think it was, you know, I think it was definitely I wanted to keep learning. That's the one thing I can say has been consistent throughout my development as a human. Um, you know, I think one time, and I don't know when, um, someone asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I wanted to do something where I could just keep learning. And so I think academia is obviously that, right? It's the ability to continue to learn and pursue knowledge and education continuously. You, I, I mean, people are experts, but you're never really an expert at everything. There's always room to learn. Um, but graduate school was actually, again, a decision about money. So, you know, when you were, or when you, when you get a psychology degree, they kind of fail, or maybe they do tell you, and I wasn't listening, that, you know, unless you wanted to go to grad school, you were probably looking to maybe become an administrative assistant? I don't know. I don't actually know what options you have as just a psychology degree anymore, but it was very clear that they weren't, you know, they weren't going to be psychology specific and uh, you would have a degree, but you weren't going to do really do anything with that degree unless you went to grad school. And so um, again, I had really great mentors who said, you know, you should apply to grad school. 
Uh, and so, you know, they took me under their wing and, and I wrote my personal statement and people looked at it and, you know, and, and I applied to a handful of grad school programs. Um, but really, it was just a way to, you know, I finally, instead of paying college money, like the idea that in at least neuroscience, you could get paid to continue your education mm -hmm. was like, what? You mean this whole time? Like, there's a, there's a path where I can keep learning and make a little bit of money. And it was probably about the, the amount you'd make if you just went out with a psychology degree. So again, I was like, well, I'm having fun. I'm not bad at this. Might as well just keep going and see where it heads. And so and I went to graduate school. Yeah, I although I'm sure it's definitely uh, way more work than than uh, a similar easy job you could get with uh, with a psych degree. So, was there any was there any initial shock going from from undergrad to to grad school? You mentioned being a first gen student. Uh yeah, I think so. So you know, um, a PhD level program was farther than anyone in my family has ever gone on any side, right? And, uh, it, you know, I felt like, um, you know, there was just all of a sudden grad school is always like this. You're, you're always, you know, when you're a good student, you're like, okay, I'm good. I'm, you know, especially elementary school, maybe you're <laughs> A plus and then, you know, middle school. Elementary you're like, school's a star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you just keep going. And if you're a good student, you're a good student. You're like, okay, I'm doing great. Well, then you get to grad school and you're really with all great students. Um, they all are there for a reason. They all deserve to be there. In fact, lots of them probably deserve to be there that maybe didn't even make it in because there's that many great people, right? And so all of a sudden you're really around, you know, some of the best and brightest. And so for me, it was a, like a little nerve wracking to feel like I maybe didn't belong there. Um, and so I had to struggle with that my first couple of years to convince myself I belong there and I could do it. Um, but I had a great mentor. I had a great PhD mentor. She was fantastic. And even uh, the first semester into grad school, I went home to Illinois and came back and did my PhD in Oregon, Oregon Health and Science University. And my mentor take it, took all of us out in the lab for, for, I think it was Christmas holiday or holiday break. She said, what's up with you? You seem like less interested. And I had seriously went home thinking like, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna quit. I can't do this. I want to quit. And she's, and I said, you know, I'm really not sure I can do this. Like, I, I don't know if I can do this. And she's like, you can do this. And like, it was a heart to heart over like a holiday dinner. And, and, you know, uh, I needed that. And, and so it was a, it was a hard transition, but it was worth it. Mm -hmm. That's great. So what were you studying during that time? Was it still environmental focused or did that come later? That definitely came later. Uh, when I, so I did animal work, you know, we did the, you know, different rats in different cages uh, for, for my undergrad. And then I also uh, did a thesis project on a mouse model of Fragile X, which is, um, you know, the leading genetic cause of mental retardation. Or, um, and then, uh, you know, wanting to go into human work, the psychology in me wanting to work with humans and I wanted to feel more connected to the human condition of individual differences and, and perspectives. So, I went to graduate school and I had the pleasure in that program to rotate. So I, I talked about this mentor who I ended up joining her lab, but the first year I actually rotated in a number of labs. So I rotated in her lab first and then later through a non-human primate lab and then another lab doing EEG and came back to her lab because she was studying, you know, multimodal neuroimaging in adolescence and just really found, you know, imaging really exciting. Um, and, and, and I had a lot of coding and I really, that was the first time I started doing coding and I really loved it. Um, and so, so my whole PhD work was really focused on, you know, the adolescent brain, the child brain using MRI modalities. Mm -hmm. And what year was this or years? Uh, so grad school was not that long ago, 2007 to 2012. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was talking with uh, Dr. Kaplan from USC, I don't know if you know him a, a couple days ago, and he was talking about how MRI was so new when he was, when he was getting into his research, but I'm like, no, Megan's not that old. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't that new per se. Although I do remind people like the first time they applied human imaging to brain structure in children. And that was like groundbreaking work was like 1999, like 2000. So mm -hmm. I was I wasn't that far behind when they were at least applying this to children, but no, I'm much I'm much 
more junior than most most professors, I think. Yeah, but you still you still were or are, I guess, you get to be a pioneer of this relatively new technology. So that's very cool. Yeah, it's it definitely there's a lot for us to do and learn and and, and improve on. So did your dissertation then focus on on some some MRI study? What was that like? Yeah, so my dissertation was based on animal work um, and 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 a little bit of a aging literature um, about physical exercise and brain structure and function in adolescence. So my mentor, she had focused on risk for alcoholism. Like that's how she got all her money. And I had done some studies looking at genetic risk for alcoholism and brain structure. I did some sex differences work, but she kept pushing me to ask my own questions. And I came across this paper that I thought was really interesting where rats who, <laughs> rats who drank alcohol had, you know, neurotoxicity, but uh, adolescent rats that drank alcohol and then ran on a running wheel seemed to have uh, no differences than a normal control rat would have. And, you know, she wanted to study alcohol risk. And I told her, you know, what if we just even see if, you know, brain plasticity was exercise in adolescence was a thing in humans, because if that's true, then maybe later on, maybe the, maybe if people are going to drink, maybe your message shouldn't be like, don't drink, which it should be if you, you know, but maybe it should be if you're going to drink, go for a run after, <laughs> maybe uh -huh. not during. And so we somehow sold that to uh, the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse as a training grant for me, saying that eventually she could look to see if it would be helpful for those that used alcohol, but first prince of proof of principle, we're going to just look to see if physical exercise related to brain in adolescence. And some aging work had already done that, right? Um, just like a couple of years before my dissertation. But nobody had, when I wrote the grant, nobody had done it in adolescence. And so that's what we did. We had some high fit and low fit kids. We had to define what that meant. We had them come and do like a, official aerobic fitness testing, which is uh, very complex where you actually make them run on a treadmill and uh, measure all their oxygen utilization um, and then study their brains um, within that week. And we saw structural differences in the hippocampus, which you'd expect from the animal literature. But we also saw functional differences in how they learned new memories. Um, with an fMRI paradigm. So it was a fun study. Wow. So was it, was it better memory in the exercise condition? So it wasn't actually better memory. We were hoping for that, but it was actually that they recruited um, only one side of their hippocampus, whereas the low active kids really recruited both of their hippocampi and other substructures when learning new memories. So we had this really cool paradigm that I, that I, I adapted and created and it was event related. So you could literally look at what was the brain doing when you were show two word pairs and you're memorizing them uh, and you later could recall them successfully. So a half hour later versus what was your brain doing when you were trying to learn two word pairs, but later didn't remember that pair. So you could kind of see what was the brain doing when you were successfully encoding versus not. Mm -hmm. And so it was the difference in the pattern of, of successful encoding that looked like they weren't using as much of their brain resources if they were more physically active. So, so it's an efficiency thing. I think so. Of course, you know, it's cross-sectional. So we, I think an intervention study would be cool at some point to really show that it's, you know, as you become more physically fit, maybe you have less, you know, less need for as much, many resources. You're more mm -hmm. efficient. Yeah, that's very cool. And I, I was tying this back into the alcohol thing. It seems like frat houses hold some wisdom after all. Really <laughs> funny. Do they go for runs after they drink? I was just thinking heavy drinking, but also heavy exercise. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. I, you know, the sad thing is years later, I couldn't really find any replication of that study. So either someone didn't replicate it and they didn't publish it because of publishing bias or you know, no one's ever tried to replicate it. So who knows, uh -huh. maybe, maybe it was a, a weird finding. Yeah, so you mentioned when you got that grant, you had you had thought maybe this is this is going to help uh, shift your career in this direction, but obviously you ended up uh, switching focus. So how did that happen? So to be honest, um, I think I never really wanted to study drug and alcohol effects on the brain. Uh, OHSU has a fantastic program, probably one of the best in the nations to understand 
risk for alcohol and drug abuse and or consequences of that. And it's a great topic. It just didn't, it didn't, I didn't want to download all those papers and read them. That's not where I found myself going. And so the exercise stuff was interesting. You know, I, I, you know, I personally think it would be useful to know for daily life, if that would be more useful for brain development. Um, but I just kind of felt like I wanted to study more about just individuals in general. And so that's when I took a postdoctoral fellowship at the Children's Hospital of LA in 2012. And the whole reason I took that position was because they were starting to do longitudinal uh, MRI, so more than one time point. And, and I really just thought the future of what we're going to know about people is studying the same people over time and their individual variability. And so I hopped on that, uh, that opportunity to learn that skill set so that I could have it in my back pocket later on in my career. Uh-huh, definitely. So is working with Children's Hospital, which is affiliated with USC, what eventually led to this faculty position? Uh, yeah, so I was a postdoc for four years. Um, and then I, I took some advice from my sister who is not in academia. And, she, and I said, what am I gonna do? I'm applying for these jobs. I'm not getting much, much interest. Um, and I don't think it's because I'm not competitive. Like it's just really hard out there. What should I do? And she said, well, why don't you go start just getting coffee with people? Uh, so maybe kind of like this podcast, why don't you just start getting to know people and what they're doing? And then maybe, you know, people say jobs come through networking. So I started to have what was like cold emails to people at UCLA and USC and others to just say, you know, this is who I am. I'm, I would love to talk to you about how you, what you're doing and where you got to where you are. Right. And sure enough, in that process, I reached out to someone at USC who had just started a new birth cohort called the Madre Study, where they were studying Latino women, Latinx, Latin women um, from LA, and they were going to study them while they were pregnant and then give birth. I obviously study older children, but I thought, wow, what a cool idea to be studying, you know, um, Hispanic women in LA and following them and their kind of exposure to the environment. And so I went and chatted with them and then I didn't even know it. They said, oh, you know what? We have a job opening. And I was like, you do? And they were like, yeah, you should consider applying if you're really interested in maybe thinking about environment and child brain development. And so I went home and, and I applied. So um, I never would have looked for a job in the Department of Preventative Medicine. I was looking for psychology and neuroscience. I wasn't looking broader than that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to that. But but also, this just reminded me, since you're applying for professor jobs, you know, obviously, there's, if you want to work in academia and keep doing research, like you were doing, then you become a professor. But um, actually, in my, my intro for you, I stumbled, I almost said research professor, because because my last interview was with a research professor, but you not only do research, but you teach. So I wanted to ask you about your teaching experience either during grad school or during your postdoc and if there was anything about that that drew you to wanting to be a professor as opposed to just doing research yeah that's a great question um so uh ohsu is a medical school so we didn't have to do ta ships those were voluntary and so in my latter years because i wanted to get that experience i partnered with a couple of different professors in nearby colleges to teach a lecture here or there, and then co-taught a course for grad students actually on fMRI applied to like clinical neuropsychology uh, with my mentor at the time. So I helped develop the course and, and teach all the lectures. Um, and I liked teaching. I think there's something really rewarding about continuing to see the world through different perspectives. And one of that is research. You meet other research scientists. The other side of that's your personal life. But I think students have a lot to offer in terms of, of what they're thinking about, how they grew up, you know, their perspective on some of, of, the, of the work and the knowledge that exists or doesn't exist. And so I just think it makes it for a more well-rounded experience to think about your work, both the app, you know, is it useful for people uh, to know about it? Because if the next generation really doesn't care about it, then how useful is it gonna be? And then also, can, can you continue to learn from all of them in terms of the ways that you maybe haven't looked or thought about something? Mm -hmm. So getting this new appointment 
in the Department of Preventive Medicine. Obviously your research, you got to stay focused on neuro, which is great, but now you're also teaching kids and you're, I'm, I'm guessing you're not teaching neuroscience classes, you're teaching in preventive medicine, right? So was that, was that a, a shock? So I was lucky enough that they let me uh, develop a course uh, with another professor who came in around the same time as me. Uh, and we got to develop a course that you're right, it's in health promotion. So something weird about USC is that uh, I need to teach in the department I'm employed. <laughs> yeah. So here I am a neuroscience major, I could probably teach some psychology, I definitely could teach neuroscience. Um, but I needed to teach something and I, you know, I'm, I would not say I'm an expert at environment by any means. I'm an interdisciplinary scientist that works with other environmental scientists. So what we did is we partnered together and we now teach a class. I think it's in year four and it's, it's doing pretty well. It's an undergrad class. And what we do is we talk about the environment and that's Dr. Ferzan's part of the, of the course where she tells us where are these chemicals found? What's in air pollution? How are different communities affected by this? And then uh, I remind people of neurobiology, uh, the cells in our brains, and, and also how to measure it with MRI. And then we talk about the literature. What do we know so far? What don't we know? And that's been really fun because that is, that is my area that, that we focus on. And so um, it's, it really couldn't have been done, though, without two professors. There wasn't anyone to teach that whole class. Um, so that's been really fun. Yeah, that sounds like a great collaboration. So what, um, what year did you start your, your professor position here? Uh, summer of 2016. Okay. So the reason I ask is you sent me two papers, one's 2020, one's 2021, and we'll get to those, but those are a bit newer. So what happened between 2016 and then any, anything noteworthy? Uh, yeah, we've done a lot uh, as a lab. Uh, small but mighty, and now and now we're rather large. Um, you know, we've we've published a number of things on individual differences in brain development and and longitudinal data with some collaborators internationally. Uh, we've done some work on looking at various sex steroids. So you know, we uh, we have a study of of some data looking at typically developing healthy adolescents. We also have some subpopulations such as kids with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Mm -hmm. The kids have a genetic abnormality where they can't make cortisol correctly. And so they have a number of other uh, hormones that get, um, um, that get altered. And so we've been studying them and published some work on them. Um, we really just continue to look at sex differences, sex steroids, um, and a number of individual differences in brain maturation. So we've had quite a bit go on, but yeah, the two papers I sent you were more recent um, because that is kind of where, where we're headed, I think. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that. So the first one was um, the ABCD air pollution study. And so I am in your lab and I still don't know that much about ABCD to be frank. And I'm sure any uh, listeners might not either. So could you go over what the ABCD study is and then also how you got involved in that? Yeah, that's a great question. So ABCD stands for the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study. And this was an initiative, I wanna say 2014, 2015, where NIH decided, right, the big funder for federal research, that they wanted to do a large, 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 large study of brain development across the US. And some studies like this had been done to some degree in Europe, like the Imogen study happened years before where they were looking at kids' adolescents in Paris and Germany and a couple of other sites. But this was gonna be the first one in the United States of America. And they wanted to have many people apply. So they wanted groups of people to kind of work together and submit, you know, how they, you know, what, what their protocol might look like to scan a bunch of children across the U.S. and study brain development. And again, going back how, how small life is sometimes, this was primarily funded originally by NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, right? Back to this work mm -hmm. of risk for drug abuse. And they were specifically interested because, you know, marijuana laws are, are changing, 
Um, obviously, we know children start to use alcohol and other drugs during adolescence commonly. And so they wanted to kind of study individuals and how they grow up for 10 years. And so they wanted to recruit nine to 10 year olds. They wanted it to be mostly representative of the United States. And they wanted all the people who've been studying brain development to, to put in an application and they were gonna select the, the, the people they wanted to kind of run this study. You can say best. <laughs> uh, so um, I was lucky enough to be a postdoctoral fellow at the time in Elizabeth Sowell's lab at CHLA where I'm still affiliated um, and helped write the application for that study. And so she was awarded one of the 21 sites that became the ABCD study. And so its conception was in 2016, they started enrolling 11,880 nine to 10 year olds across the US and they tried their best to make it as representative of all the nine to 10 year olds in America. Now, given those 21 sites are pretty a big urban areas, so you are missing some rural areas and you definitely don't have all the demographics but they tried their best and, and with the researchers and the MRI machines that were available. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be a co-I on that study and then more recently became a co-PI, which means I help co-lead um, the CHLA site. And so ABCD is really exciting because for the first time, not only are we studying individual differences, the same kids over a 10 year period, uh, but we also have so much information on them from, you know, uh, their social environments, their school environments, how they feel and think, what their parents think they feel and think, um, where they stand in their pubertal maturation, how they do on some cognitive tests, what their brain structure and brain function look like. Essentially, if you can think of it, it probably exists in the data set. So we're talking thousands of variables and these wonderful children and parents who have signed up come back on an annual basis and they get their brain scanned every two years. Yeah, so I was that, blown away by that, by, you know, a sample size of 10 or 11,000 and <laughs> getting MRIs and they're all kids. And, you know, I had an MRI a couple months ago and it, it was it was pretty cool, but I don't know if I'd want to do it again <laughs> every year, especially if I was a kid. The, um, so props to them. Yeah. I mean, I think it helps, you know, uh, everyone who's part of this consortium has been studying child and, and adolescent brain development for a long time. I'm probably one of the most junior again. Um, and so, you know, we did half hour sessions, you know, if they couldn't do a full hour, we definitely had movies showing during the scans where we're not looking at brain functions so they could watch, you know, Finding Nemo or whatever video would keep them holding still, but I, 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 it's a lot, you know, the whole visit I think can last up to eight hours of being in the lab doing tests. And, and so uh, it wouldn't be possible without all of those that volunteer. Um, and so that's pretty incredible. It's an incredible study. Mm -hmm. um, so the paper that came of it is because I became very interested when I joined environmental health in our current department uh, in studying the environment. And one of the things that we are really good at at USC is studying air pollution. Um, and I didn't know this until, you know, I had those cups of coffee with all those professors, but we've been studying air pollution and its effects on lung function and body mass index and all of these things and have really helped clean up the air in LA. Like that research has literally been uh, used in policy for EPA and other standards and so um, was very excited to think about if we could see if whether or not even with the, the improvements we've made, does air pollution matter in terms of brain development and, and using ABCD. So I co-chair, you know, across the entire consortium, how we think about environment and how we can link that to where people live. Um, and so this paper was just that, it was looking at one type of air pollution called fine particulate matter, which are these very, very small, particles and gases and how that may relate to brain structure and found some interesting patterns uh, where, you know, higher air pollution was linked to not only decreases in brain volume, which maybe people would have hypothesized as being bad, but also in some regions increases. And what I think is going on is that the brain goes through a pruning process. So you kind of increase the number of synapses, 
and you have more connections and more volumes and then you prune. And so maybe, just maybe, air pollution might influence the microglial cells in our brain, which are involved with uh, the pruning process. And so now we have grants to follow them longitudinally to see if the trajectories of brain maturation matter. Yeah, when, when reading that, I was wondering, I mean, you know, air pollution obviously sounds bad, but seeing that it, it didn't seem like, you know, decreased volumes across the board as if there's, it's, it's impeding your, your brain development. It seems like things were maybe just being shifted around, like decreases in some areas, increases in others. And then you also mentioned that there were no differences in cognitive performance. So I was wondering, are these structural differences that you found, do you have reason to believe that they're harmful or does it seem like it's just, it's somehow your brain is reorganizing itself in, in response to the environment? Yeah, it's really an interesting question, and I don't think we'll know yet. So one thing, right, is we took a single snapshot of both air pollution one year prior to when they got their brain scan. And then we took a single snapshot of what their brain looked like to nine to 10 year olds. And like you said, you know, maybe there's just a rearrangement. So we know the brain is sensitive at different time periods to different things. And we know different systems are more malleable. You know, think about language. I can't learn Spanish for the life of me. I've been trying forever and I can't, right? Maybe if I would have just learned as a kid, it would have been easier. Um, so part of me thinks that it could be that there's just sensitive periods of which brain system is being remodeled, that air pollution matters. And so that our grants that we have now should answer that eventually. And it will look at air pollution exposure from where they live when they were born all the way up until we, we stopped the study. Um, and I don't know about the effect, you know, I think people wanted, other research has shown cognitive effects and either maybe the air pollution levels are low in America and maybe at higher levels, you would see the cognitive effects others have seen, or maybe, you know, the cognitive effects don't come on until later or maybe there's compensatory mechanisms. You know, I think one thing I always remember from my time in, in reading the literature from animals, which I still do very actively and being part of those labs is how malleable the brain is. So compensation mm -hmm. I think is real. And so we, I think time will tell if, if, if it's meaningful for function, but it definitely seems like structurally there might be something going on, mm -hmm. which you will have to find out if whether or not it links to everybody's everyday life. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. So you mentioned that USC has been a, a leading uh, institution for research on air pollution and that this research has directly impacted, like, I don't know, air, air pollution laws in, in maybe LA or California. Um, so are you most interested in, in this topic theoretically as in like, wow, here are some ways that the brain can be affected during development. That's so cool. Or is it more of like a you know, wow, we need to do everything we can to make sure that we're not harming developing brains. And so it's more, it's more of like a theoretical versus uh, an intervention type motivation, or is it both? So I would definitely say my research until the last, you know, five, six years was definitely the, oh, that's so cool. But I feel that when I came across environmental neuro neuroscience, which really is where, you know, the, the lab kind of fits as part of part of what we do, you know, which is an emerging field, is like there's real policy implications. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, when I started to learn about the environment, air pollution was just one, right? There's all these chemicals in our, in our, in our foods, there's all these chemicals in what we wash our faces with, there's, you know, there's environmental injustice. So maybe another thing that really played a role is, um, you know, I live in Boyle Heights, um, where my, uh, my partner was born and raised. Um, and we found out a couple of years ago about the Exide plant. Have you heard about the Exide plant? No. So the Exide plant was this battery recycling plant in, in LA. Uh, it's in East LA. And they were like taking old car batteries and melting them down, you know, essentially to get rid of them. So it was a smelter plant. And it had essentially been running without valid permits for 30 years, polluting the entire environment around East LA. So Downey, Bell, Bell Gardens, Boyle, parts of Boyle Heights. So much so, so that they started testing the soil 
of people's homes and finding essentially toxic waste level of lead and arsenic and other chemicals. And so, you know, you know, this was eye-opening. It was already eye-opening when you read about it, but it was eye-opening that I was living, you know, essentially in the old place we were living in toxic waste level, you know, and, and community, I'd go to the community member boards where the people who were supposed to clean it up, you know, really were like, oh yeah, you know, and the community was like, hey, this has been going on forever. When can we get some justice around here? Um, and so I think things like that also, like here, maybe in addition to like the air is bad for everyone in LA, like maybe we can also show how bad this is and then maybe rectify, especially for the communities that have been hit the hardest from some of this decision-making that was out of, you know, our control as everyday citizens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so your research can have real policy implications. I mean, mine hasn't so far, but okay. yeah, I think <laughs> it can. I think the environmental neuroscience, you know, people should care that air pollution impacts lungs and asthma and they should care that it might increase our risk of obesity. But I feel like neuroscience has always been a sexy topic. And if people can realize <laughs> it could influence our brains, maybe people will start to care. Maybe. Yeah. Why do you think that is that that neuroscience seems uh, sexier than biology? I don't know. I don't know. It's just, uh, do you have any theories on that? I don't know. I mean, it, it could be like uh, almost a narcissistic thing. Like, wow, if my brain causes me to do everything I do, then I'm more interested in that than my silly little body. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder if that'll happen with like AI and stuff or, or, you know, if we ever reach the level of being able to upload our consciousness into a computer. It will stop <laughs> caring about neuro and only care about the, the newest um, simulation. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember distinctly in interviewing for grad school, I interviewed in one, and I can't even remember what place it was. And the professor asked me, he was an MD PhD. And he said, why do you really care about the brain? Like the brain only works in context of the whole body. And I was, you know, I was like, probably 20. I went right through. So I didn't take any time out. I was really young. And I was like, no, the brain controls everything. What are you talking about? Like the brain, the brain stem and like all the things we do subconsciously, it's definitely about the brain. That's why I want to study the brain. And now thinking back to air pollution, these other chemicals and, and what I know about neuroendocrine function and all of this, he was so right. Like the brain is connected to the rest of the body. And so if your lungs and your heart are being affected by air pollution, well, your heart and your oxygen levels also are what require the brain to work. So it's, it's like, it's almost like, it's funny that neuroscience is so sexy because I think we're gonna find out in the next decade system links and how, you know, it's not just the brain, right? People are starting to put the gut with the brain, right? They're starting, you know, I think there'll be more with the heart in the brain and the lungs in the brain. And then the question is which one becomes sick first and or do they become sick together? But I think it's going to be really interesting when we start, you know, stop studying things as like separate organs and we start to kind of go back to, you know, Eastern medicine. It's all connected, right? Right. Yeah, that, I, I just started reading Descartes' Error by Dr. Damasio here at USC. And, and he talks about how reason isn't just produced objectively by the brain. It's influenced by emotion. And emotion isn't just produced by the brain. It's influenced by the entire body. Uh, and I... I've heard he's doing some new stuff uh, with, with how your, your gut microbiome might influence your brain. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, learning about emotional theory, right? One is like, does you have top down of emotion, right? Um, you think you experience something and then you feel it, or is it bottom up? Do you feel the arousal, your heart race, you know, all of these like uh, sensory inputs that then tell your brain you're having an emotion. And, and I don't think we know the answer still, right? It's probably some combination of both, but mm -hmm. that was really eye-opening to think like emotion could be all your body. If you could just stop it in your body, maybe you could stop it in your brain, but. It seems like the number one answer to any scientific question when it's phrased as either or is it's probably some combination of both. Yeah, <laughs> that's how you always end your discussion in your paper, okay? It's probably both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so do you want to talk about uh, 
Claire, one of your grad students new paper? Sure. Okay, so I, from what I understood, you looked at, you, you were able to divide the amygdala into nine subregions and look at structural differences in those subregions in adolescence and you found some sex differences. Yes. Yeah, so I think one of the things in addition to wanting to understand individual differences and wanting to study the environment is that, you know, also, I think everybody who's a scientist, they wanna also use the most accurate and, and new methods to do so. And so one of the things that we had done or I had done personally is I always looked at the amygdala, which I didn't, you know, I used to be a hippocampus person. I was like the hippocampus, especially with exercise, hippocampus, hippocampus, hippocampus. And then early on in, in my postdoc, I found some interesting results with the total amygdala um, and testosterone and thought, what is the amygdala even doing? And of course, I'd remember from the animal literature, when you talk to people about the amygdala that study this at the level of cellular, molecular, there's so many things going on, right? There's so many micro circuits that are controlling the, you know, classical conditioning, or even, you know, looking at some papers, you can lesion parts of the amygdala and, and you get fat rats, right? So right. Um, there's a lot going on in the amygdala. And so I started to think, you know, how could we better look at the amygdala? We can look at total volume, but maybe we're missing something. And at that point, um, I had been introduced to Mike Titska, who is at Caltech, um, and he had kind of come up with a new way to, to kind of segment the amygdala in vivo. And this is exciting because there were other ways people had used, but they were mostly based on like a handful of old male, uh, old males. So like a lot of the atlases were based on like 10 men who were over the age of 70, um, which is not really representative of the developing brain. And so, um, this is exciting that he had created an, a way to segment the amygdala using in vivo imaging like we do and do it in a in in part of the human connectome project so this large scale study and he used you know young adults so 18 you know uh to 25 which is much closer to what we're studying and so i said you know i i would love to know what's going on with amygdala in an adolescent sample and i didn't have access to a longitudinal data set but i had access to my old mentor bonnie nagel up at ohsu that wonderful mentor that didn't let me quit um and and i knew she had 400 adolescents because i had scanned a lot of them when i was a grad student right mm -hmm. and i said you have a great resource and i think it'd be really cool if we did this you know atlas and looked at the amygdala in this you know, these 400 kids you've scanned already. And she said, great. And I, and she said, go write a grant. You know, she didn't say I want to write a grant. She said, that's a great idea. You should run with it. So I wrote a grant and she was very nice. She just like, was like, here's some, here's my data that I work, you know, my whole career to put together. And Mike Titz goes like, here's my Atlas. Let me know how I can help. And so Claire in the lab really took that project and, and ran with it. And yeah, we did, we saw in these 400 ish adolescents, that that the if you segment that amygdala it's it's it looks slightly different when you're 10 versus 17 in, in boys in terms of the composition what proportion of each nuclei uh takes up the amygdala but not in girls and or females mm -hmm. and so it's really interesting and now she has some work that's about to go out for a review trying to understand both testosterone levels that were collected in a subset as well as their androgen receptor sensitivity so genetic differences and a functional polymorphism for how sensitive your, your body is to testosterone. And so she's finding some interesting associations with that as well, using this kind of similar approach of the amygdala. That's really cool. So is, is the general goal with subdividing these regions to see which specific regions are associated with what behaviors or functions? Yeah, down the road, that is our goal. So um, the interesting thing about the 400 individuals from Bonnie Nagel's lab was that they all came from different studies. So she, she does great phenotyping. And by phenotyping, I mean behavioral testing on, on these kids. But because so many of them came from different studies, the imaging sequence was the same, but not all the behavioral sequences were the same. And so we didn't mm -hmm. have the same amount of power to say, does this relate to function in, in, in emotion or other behaviors? And so that's something I'd really like to do. I'd like to replicate this at some point 
I'd like to study people longitudinally to see if we really do see individual differences and in, in kind of you know, the morphology of the amygdala. And then more importantly, does that at all relate to behavior? Um, and we haven't, we don't have the data set picked out yet to do that, but I think, mm -hmm. you know, that will be important. Yeah, fingers crossed for that. So I wanted to ask you about these, just, are you more of a visual learner or do you learn by like words and associations, especially with regards to like making sure or learning what, what specific brain regions do? Do you picture it in your mind and then you match the picture to the function or is it just like the word will bring up other words? Oh, interesting. I've never thought of that. Um, I guess I like in my head picture the brain and then I just picture whatever function I've associated with it. Yeah. So the reason I ask is because especially while reading Claire's paper, it's like amygdala. Great. That's one of the, the first things you learn about. So it's, it's not too hard to imagine, but the subregions, I feel like unless you spend your whole career looking at this one specific brain area, you probably won't memorize what these different subregions are doing uh, unless, well, yeah, unless, unless you're just taking notes on it. But, and it seems like the bigger, the broader you go, the easier it is to do. But I was wondering if I say something like parahippocampal gyrus, does that actually bring forth a specific area in mind for you? Or is it more like what happens for me is like, oh yeah, this is an area associated with the hippocampus and memory, but I can't get any more specific than that unless I open up a textbook. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm the latter. I think it's hard for me once you start to segment into many regions to, to really retain the specificity, unless I'm working on a project with those regions and I'm, and I'm refreshing what, what exactly they do. But I feel like maybe that's because I'm not a neuroanatomist because I, I swear the neuroanatomists who have say, you know, essentially take their whole career defining each region, they mm -hmm. probably, well, functional neuroanatomists, not just a right, you know, uh, they probably have them down packed. But um, yeah, I think you have a great point, which is Claire didn't do this for her paper that just was published, but this next one, I had her create a 3D replication of these regions and, and map her results to a picture because I too was like, <laughs> even in my head, and, and I know I wrote the grant, I <laughs> worked with her on this paper for the last couple of years. I still would be like, wait, that one's the most lateral? That's the most medial? Is that the one that makes up the bigger BLA group? You know, like, it was just like, I needed the visual to make it more concrete. And so her next paper has that, but we really should have done that for that paper because I'm with you. As soon as you start getting smaller and smaller, the harder it is to tangibly wrap your head around not only where are they located, but their potential functional implications. Right. And it's definitely reassuring to hear that that's coming even from you. So yeah. I don't know, ask, ask some more professors. I bet they, I bet some of them, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I memorized all of those regions. I will ask. So it's, it's funny because this is usually the part where I'll ask about ongoing and future work, but the nature of your research is that so much of it is longitudinal or so much of it is just these giant data sets that are waiting to be analyzed. So it's like, it's the same project just from different angles. Yeah, I think so. I think um, some of the exciting things are, you know, looking at different brain modalities. So both those papers were looking at brain structure. And mm -hmm. I actually didn't start that type of work until I was a postdoc. I'm much more focused on white matter microstructure with diffusion methodology and functional MRI as a trainee, uh, as a PhD uh, student. And so I'm very much looking forward to jumping into that uh, work because we do have multimodal, as we call it, in these studies. And, and one thing I always laughed about, I still think people say I'm multimodal and then they just publish structure and function. You know, as a field, I still think we have a lot of work to do to look at networks and not regions and then also integrate them. So if you know, if there really are these structural differences with air pollution or structural differences with, with gray matter in the amygdala, I would, I would assume that the systems that are at play would also be altered, the way they're connected, the way that they function. And so I think that, that I'd like to see our lab take the next step in the next five years and really start to be some of the great leaders 
or at least just try to integrate them, right? Try to say something more than just the size of smaller or bigger and really start to work with integrating the modalities in a meaningful way. And so people are using machine learning, people are using you know, other methods of like uh, graph theory to look at networks and hubs and edges. Um, you know, these things have been going on for a while, but I'd like to see those be applied to some of the work in sex differences, in functional endocrinology, in environmental neuroscience. And so, you know, I don't think we're going to recreate the wheel. These people are already doing this. These methods exist, but I'd like to see them be applied to how we answer our questions in a more thorough way. Mm -hmm. Those definitely sound like great future directions for the field at large. What about the general public? Do you feel that there's, there's anything that you either think the general public is lacking about um, neuroscience education or things you wish would be uh, focused on more or just things you want to get out there? Um, I think all of us in, that are, uh, that are in science, you know, there, there's still a push, but I think it, I think we need to do a better job of like actually making our results and what we do tangible to the everyday person. Um, and I think that could come in a lot of different ways, you know, um, and maybe we, we, you know, as a field could brainstorm. So part of what, like, for example, one thing I love to show students in class are these videos called two minute neuroscience. Have you seen those? Yeah, I have. Yeah. So I love those. Who I don't know who that guy is. I should probably reach out to him and tell him like, I literally watch all his videos, but it takes, and, and even those are not as lay as I'm thinking for the general public, but it takes really concept or really complicated subjects and can literally explain them, you know, like Reddit's explain it like I'm five yeah. um, and, and help people out. Like these don't, and, and it's not just words, you know, not you know, you asked if I was like visual or verbal, I think I'm both, but you know, reading textbooks, some of those things are really dense. And even our mm -hmm. papers that you started with are really hard. Can't we help like the, the whole, the whole human existence to share what we're learning in a way that's, you know, here we are like some of the leading scientists around the world doing really cool stuff, but we can't explain what we do to the regular everyday person. Like, and we are everyday people, right? Like I'm an everyday person. So the fact, like if I can explain it to my parents and my, and my aunts and uncles, which I can, then why don't we, don't we have a focus and are paid and prioritized to be able to share things more with people at that level. And so I think, I think just in general, educating people on the scientific process, the importance of research, what is research? You know, you know, I was fortunate to go to school and learn what research and then get hands-on experience. But, you know, I, I, I have feelings there's millions and millions of Americans and elsewhere that don't really know what research means. And I think it'd be useful right. for us to, to let them know what that means. Right. Not only spreading out that information and making it more digestible, but making sure it stays accurate. I, I think I saw one example and it was, it, was, it was kind of a spoof of how much a media article twisted a, a scientific article. From what I remember, it was something like one small part of an article said, like, we found a small association between, like, I don't know, chocolate consumption and some type of cancer. And then one media article reports it as association found between chocolate and cancer. And then another cites that one and says, you know, chocolate causes cancer. And then, like, it breaks into the tabloid, breaking news, chocolate causes cancer <laughs> or something like that. It's like the telephone, the telephone game. Yeah, right? exactly. Something need, and it changes. We need to well, stop playing telephone with science. Yeah. Well, that's also the hard thing, right? It's like, I think schools and academic institutions want people to do really fancy work and get recognized for that fancy work. You know, if, if chocolate does relate to cancer, they want to be the first ones to hear about it. And they want every news media to cover it. Maybe not right now. There's a pandemic, but you know, in general, they want they want their research to be known, and so I think sometimes and and for me it's difficult because I don't know how to upsell my work. I'm always like, well, we don't really know, you know, and like people, yeah. are, that's not what they want to hear. They want to hear X relates to Z uh, or Y first. Um, mm -hmm. And so I also think again, if we just educated people on the scientific process and what we do know and and what we don't know 
you know, maybe that would help or maybe it would just make people lose faith in, in science because we don't know that much. Right. Mm -hmm. But at least we would be more, we would educate people about the process so that maybe, yeah, maybe they, maybe it would be useful, but in terms of how to make sure that stuff doesn't get twisted and turn into a new meeting, man, who knows? The internet is crazy these days. Yeah, it seems like one solution, but it has a huge flaw, is long-form discussion like this, unedited, not boiled down into like superficial headlines. But the problem is no one has time for that. You don't even have time to read like studies in your field, let alone, you know, all of science. Um, recently, through, um, through some work we've been doing at the consortium level to think about justice and equity and diversity and inclusion, is talking about uh, urgency in science and, and, and urgency in general, how people are so quick to try to publish so they have that or add to their CV and how, how more importantly than any of that is the process, right? Is like mm -hmm. the actual process. And, and if people found value in the process like this, the process of sitting down, process of having a cup of coffee with a scientist, whatever you wanna do, right? Like that, that, that is where real learning and education and change probably happens. The publications are probably the end point. And yeah, it's nice for grants and it's nice for recognition, but the process, people should appreciate the process more. And so I think that's why I was happy to, to join you today, because I think the process of talking about research, about talking about how people got to where they are is probably equally as meaningful for that person and hopefully others than just, you know, the list of publications or whatever's listed on their website. It's like the process of becoming a scientist or the process of doing science is so much more meaningful. Absolutely. And I hope that view becomes more widespread. So I think this is a great place to stop. Dr. Herting, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>